Welcome to this episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. I'm your host, Indus Khetan, founder and CEO of Quolum. Today, I have a very special guest, Adam Metzger, with me. Adam is an accomplished CFO and an investor in many successful startups. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, really good to be here. This. So Adam, uh, you have a very interesting background. I saw a couple of uh, very successful investments, including Peloton. You know, it was talk of the town and still a lovely consumer product. And you have been, as a professional, helping startups in their financial journey. Would love to know more how this Adam comes into existence. Sure. And it was, it was a very circuitous route. Um, I, I actually started off my career as, as a trader, a floor trader on the SIBO, uh, trading index and equity derivatives. And that was right out of college. And even before then, I was pre-med and then did a bunch of different routes. And I said, all right, well, I want to go into finance. And so I was actually, um, <clears throat> I was interning on the P-Coast out of, you know, in Cal, and this was around 2001. So it was right after, you know, the bubble crashed. And it was just, it was, it was kind of mayhem on the floor. And then I decided I want to continue doing this. And so I was in a pit, uh, you know, uh, as a market maker for about three years, trading different single stock and then index derivatives as well. And it was a really interesting way to, to kind of, you know, crack my teeth a little bit. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of raw, you know, kind of raw motion within the pit. It's, it's kind of a difficult environment. I did it for three years. Um, I learned a lot. I thought it was an amazing environment to really, to really start, you know, get things started, but it wasn't like an iBanking background or anything like that. It was much different. And I didn't really see a huge future as a floor trader at this point. And this is like 2001 to 2003. So I started, you know, looking around to how I kind of expand my career and, and get more on the investment side, you know, you know, basically in New York and on Wall Street. And so I started working with um, a hedge fund in New York called Caxton Associates, which was a really large macro fund run by a gentleman, Bruce Kevner, who was like a legendary investor. Um, and, you know, kind of like one of the, you know, in the drunken Miller, you know, vein. And I was on the, the mortgage and macro desk for about four years. And this was during 05 through, through 07. So kind of, you know, in the thick of it. And I think my first day on the job was actually um, going to a Bear Stearns conference um, that was discussing the ABX, which was, you know, a derivative of the, of the subprime market. And so, you know, so we were in it, um, or at least really, you know, we weren't just shorting, unfortunately, we weren't really shorting subprime, but, you know, we were, we, we had the idea basically, and then it just was not executed. So it was kind of watch the entire thing pass, you know, pass us by to some extent. Um, and then, I stayed on the buy side um, and I started uh, working with Morgan Stanley Investment Management, running their agency mortgage portfolio um, from for about three years from 08 through 2010. I think we topped out around 25 billion or so. Uh, it was really interesting. I mean, just so much activity and everything had just bottomed out. And then through 09 and the next couple of years, we saw all these distressed assets just being gobbled up. Um, by a lot of really intelligent, you know, hedge funds and money managers, and 
Um, and we were, we were involved in it. It was really interesting and amazing experience. Um, and so continued doing that for a few years. And then I wanted to get some experience on the, on the sell side. It's just a very different kind of education. And so I went to BNP Paribas and <clears throat> started basically getting to this trend of building up different trading desks within the mortgage space. And so I was starting, you know, started doing residential uh, 30 year TBAs, uh, moved on to 15 years uh, in spec pools, and then was doing uh, agency CMBS as well. And so portfolio size were anywhere between, or my books were anywhere between, I don't know, 2 billion or 15 billion. And so, you know, it was, they, they just, they really gave you balance sheet and quite a bit of room to, you know, to kind of flex your muscles a bit and see what you could do. So it was, it was a really, really interesting and different environment from the money manager, which was, uh, it was <clears throat> much more tightly, not regulated, but there's only, you couldn't do much in terms of proprietary trading or anything like that. Everything was, was much more rigid, you know, so it was, it was a different kind of mentality and, you know, on the sales side, I was working with clients and just running the sales and marketing for my book. And, you know, it was a whole different kind of education. And it was within that time that I started getting interested in startups. And I didn't know in what sense. Um, so I started doing a, a little, you know, a couple investments here and there. Um, I think during that time, I did two investments. One was, one was through a friend's small, like very, very small private equity company. And I invested in, I think it was like a spa in San Francisco that I found closed down from a Yelp review. My, 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 my former friend didn't tell me. He does. I found out that, oh, we loved it. Too bad it closed. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's strange. How does that happen? So I, I had a <clears throat> tense phone call with my friend on that one. And, and then within a couple of months, um, I invested in Peloton. Um, and, the circumstances for that were were were, were just funny. Um, John John Foley, um, I met through a good friend of mine who you know, we all went to Cal. John's wife Jill went to Cal, and so they all lived in the same building in New York. And you know, my friend was telling me about you know business that John's starting, <clears throat> and I'm like, well, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why I live in New York? Why? Why would I want an exercise bike in my home? And I think I just, I just, and ironically, I just gone on a date with a girl who had an exercise bike in her apartment and she was telling me about it. I'm like, this is insane. That this doesn't make any sense. And so I didn't go to the meeting and I ended up going, visiting my brother in New Jersey who had two kids and he was getting out of shape. And I literally had taken my bike from New York to New Jersey so I can ride with him. And, and then I just got this sense and I, this flashback of, you know, the idea that John had it. And I'm like, Oh, I get it. I get it. <clears throat> and so I, I was having drinks with my buddy and, and I was asking him about John. I'm like, look, does John still need funds? He's like, let me text him. He's like, John He's like fully Metzger wants to invest. And John's like, yes. So I'm like, great. And that was, that was it. And obviously that was, that was kind of an amazing ride uh, and really interesting. And then, um, you know, a couple of years go by, BNP 
um, as a French bank and kind of a contrarian indicator to general market trends, um, they said, look, we need to cut about 50% of our balance sheet and you're on a balance sheet. And I was running the campus at the time. It was around 3 billion and I was doing well and growing it, but they're like, look, I'm sorry. I'm like, okay. So I <clears throat> ended up taking about a, about a year and a half off and really, I mean, I, I traveled all over the place, but really just wanted to take some time and figure out what I wanted to do. Um, with kind of my career and see how I can actually get into this new space of startups that I really had no idea about because it's such a difficult it's such a difficult transition to go from being a trader to a startup and and so I was in San Francisco where I was thinking about moving back and I was interviewing with just these amazing companies who were all in their Series A so I, I met with I met with like you know. Zach Parrott from Plaid when they were just about to raise their Series A and emailing with like Fred Urshan when he was at Coinbase and like, you know, the people at Upstart and and Circle. And I'm only, you know, name dropping because none of them hired me, which I, mean, <laughs> I get. Like I get why they didn't hire me because I just had no idea how, to, how I was going to fit into this. Like I literally had to ask my friend at one point, I'm like, what exactly is BizDev? Like, what does that mean? You know, because I was just running my own book and that's what I was doing. And it just, you, it, I, I had no education. And so <clears throat> I ended up staying in, um, ended up deciding to stay in New York. And I eventually had a, <clears throat> excuse me, had a friend who just moved there um, and she was running a, an accelerator uh, in New York called Civic Hall Labs uh, that was run by Civic Hall, which was run by um, a gentleman, Andrew Roche, who was, you know, very big in the New York community and the startup world as well. And it was very, um, it was more uh, some dot orgs and gov tech um, and very early companies. And they had about five portfolio companies. And they just basically brought me in as the CFO in residence to help educate the companies and build out financial models, um, you know, strategize on fundraising uh, and things like that. And they were small. Some had some revenue, but uh, but for the most part, the rest of were pre-revenue. So very young, two to three people in each company most, right? So just getting off the ground. <clears throat> um, eventually, I uh, the company Civic Hall Labs or Civic Hall, they brought me on as their fractional CFO. And I'm like, well, this is a thing. This is a thing. Okay, I'll do it. You know. And so I literally had no. I mean, I was, I because I, I wasn't making any money with you know just being in there as their CFO residence. I was just learning, right? And then um, they brought me on as their CFO fractional to build out a financial model for a like an eighty thousand square foot space um, above Union Square that was dedicated to um, you know. Uh, government tech um, dot org kind of uh, kind of kind of a workspace, and then we presented it to the EDC and we won, which was great. And I literally think that they just started building this like six months to a year ago, so it was about six six to eight years in the making. Um, <clears throat> and then through this time, I I I met a colleague who was the individual who uh, introduced me to Grafana, um, but. He had been doing fractional CFO work for a few years, and he was working with 
um, a company called Motel. Uh, and then I saw, I saw that you were connected with, uh, with Amal. And so I was working with Notel very early when they had a few buildings and I, I was working kind of under my, under my friend who was their fractional CFO. So I wasn't getting paid, but it was fine. I was just kind of learning everything. And then, um, and then things just started to, to kind of click from there. And I started to really enjoy it. I loved the flexibility. I loved, you know, working with these different companies and they were so, I guess there was so much excitement, right? That you just didn't see <clears throat> on the trading side. Like on the on the trading side, you just saw anger and volatility, right? <laughs> and and a lot of it was coming from me, right? And and which was one of the, like the main impetus for for kind of leaving that. You know, I didn't want to just spend my life in front of a screen watching mortgage rates in the ten year go bit 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 and just fueling anger. Um, and, and watching it as well. It just wasn't a good environment or a healthy one. Um, and so I, I started just working in New York as a fractional CFO. And for the first few years, I mean, actually, since then, every single company that I've ever worked with has been a referral and things just started to click. And it was early for the first few years, it was a much earlier stage. It was pre revenue through Series A, but never above that, you know? So maybe the companies had. <clears throat> between five and 10 million of funding. Um, they had revenue, but rarely was it over like, I mean, rarely was it over like 150, you know, MRR, right? So these are small companies still kind of like, you know, just finding their way. Um, and then I worked, I started working with, but it was all over the place. So I was, uh, so prop tech, um, healthcare, ad tech, um, and then I started working with a brewery in Brooklyn. Um, and then since then, um, it's been, I've worked with probably over 50 different companies in the last, in the last nine or 10 years. Um, <clears throat> literally every single, every single industry and sector, um, from the ones that I already mentioned to SaaS, e-commerce, um, D2C, um, a, a, quite a bit of climate tech as of late. Um, and some AI as well. And so it's been, it's been really interesting. And then the way that I work with the companies is based off of what their needs are, right? So, you know, if it was an earlier company, then I would establish a lot of all of their financial controls and, you know, their AP, AR, uh, manage their bookkeeper, um, uh, manage the accountant, put in controls and such and, you know, and so forth, so forth. And then, Build out, build out financial models, put together, um, you know, detailed annual departmental budgets, data analytics, and then um, it started to get, it started evolving into running the uh, the fundraising process, both from equity and debt, and then managing the board, so all investor relations, managing the due diligence process, you know, four nine A's, everything like that, um, and then onboarding employees. Um, putting up, you know, putting together, you know, onboarding PEOs and, and health insurance. So it depends on what they need. So those were much more for the earlier companies. And then over the last four to five years, things have started to shift, um, <clears throat> towards larger companies who had been fundraising much more. So I've worked with companies that have three people and companies that have 300 people and have raised over a hundred million, 
Um, and so to that extent, you know, the responsibilities are much different because I'm not the sole point of finance, which I much more prefer. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a really, uh, interesting ride and I never would have predicted that I would have landed where I am. Right. But it's been, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And then and within that time, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to inter- get introduced to some really amazing companies and CEOs and have the opportunity to invest in them as well. So it's been, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thanks for that uh, intro. I'm curious about two things. A, you're a Cal grad. You moved out of the Bay Area to live in New York. How did that happen? Because of the job or you didn't want to be in the Bay Area? No, no, I, I really wanted to be in the Bay Area. Um, so when I graduated in, let's see, so I graduated in 2000, but it was December of 2000 because I played, I played water polo at Cal. And so I did, I redshirted. So I, I did one more semester and um, back in January, I took, I had a job lined up with an options trading firm in San Francisco on the Picos. And I went to Europe and did kind of my backpacking, growing a goatee, you know, never <laughs> changing clothes kind of thing for about six months. Um, it was, it was amazing. I was, yeah, it was amazing. Um, I was disgusting by the end. Um, but, um, but I got back and they, they basically pulled their offer. And so, mm. so I literally had nothing. And, and, you know, you know, this was a time when San Francisco was just in shambles, right? I mean, probably, I mean, yeah, it was, it was just a bad time for San Francisco. This is <laughs> just after dot-com, right? 2001. Yeah, 2001, 2001, oh, like in the summer. Um, like, I mean, kind of similar from what I understand about how it is to some extent now, but I don't visit it, but this is just narrative. Um, but it was bad and, um, there were no jobs, nothing in finance. Um, and so the, the gentleman that I clerked with when I was on, when I was, you know, at Cal, he had moved to Chicago to basically open up, um, a firm with a large Dutch trading firm, uh, or, you know, a unit with a large, large Dutch trading firm, uh, called Vandermolen. And, and I had been couch hopping for like three months, um, with just a bag of clothes. So it was, it was kind of one of those things. And, um, I just said, yes, I need the job. So I left and I had one suitcase, went to Chicago. I ended up staying in a hotel for like two weeks because I didn't have like a place to live. And that was it. And then and <laughs> my first day of work was 9-11, which was, you know, which was an obvious, you know, which well, not that one. That was, I mean, it was just like, that wasn't a great intro, um, uh, for, you know, kind of work, but it, it, um, it was just a very, it was a very strange time. Um, and then I ended up staying in Chicago for a few years, but, you know, I love the city. I love the people. Um, but being as a trader on the floor, was just an open outcry system. There's no future in it, right? I mean, it was, I mean, you learn a lot and probably made, everyone probably learned a lot and made a lot of money in the 80s and 90s when there was, when spreads were, you know, you know, crazy wide. But when I got there, everything switched to decimals 
and things went from like a point wide or quarter quarter wide to a penny wide or a nickel wide, you know. One sixteenth to a penny, right? That's what that's the transition. Yeah, yeah, steeny to a penny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the interesting thing. When I started there, we were <laughs> you just got really good at adding fractions together too and like very, very quickly. Um, but yeah, there was no edge anymore. And I found that a lot of the people who are still there were just doing it because they were bored. They were older and bored and very wealthy. And I'm like, I'm not gonna learn anything. You know, like you capped out and, and I didn't have a mentor and I just found it difficult. And so, you know, for me, it made sense to just to, to get out. And so when I, when I, <clears throat> when I got the job at Caxton, it was actually in the middle office in Princeton, it wasn't even in New York. And so, yeah, it was really far. So I drove a U-Haul from Chicago to Princeton with like my futon. And, and I think that might've been it, maybe a, like a couple suitcases through up to Princeton. I had one friend who was working there, which is how I got the job. And it was, I mean, it was Princeton, right? I mean, beautiful, but I was, I think I was 26. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? Um, but for me, it was a step. Caxton was... I mean, Caxton was an elite hedge fund and I needed to get my foot in the door. It was, it was a dream opportunity. I just needed to do it. And so um, drove there, uh, lived out there for about, I don't know, for about 10 months. And then a job with one of the portfolio managers in Princeton, or sorry, New York, he, he was looking for, you know, a junior PM or, you know, associate PM and, he put it out broadly, but he wanted to see if anybody in the middle office was interested. And I'm like, yes. And so I applied and I ended up having to, uh, it was me and one other individual. Um, and the PM basically said, he's like, all right, well, you both are great, but for now, I'd like you to write a paper on the housing market. And this is around fall of 2005. And I'm like, all right, Ooh, I'm going to... That's I'm timely. Gonna. Yeah. Well, he... <laughs> yeah. Well, he is... I mean, he's brilliant. He, yeah, the PM was brilliant. He's, I think he's, he's currently the chief risk officer at B of A. Just a very, very intelligent guy. Um, um, and so I wrote the paper and it was about, I don't know, it was like 15 pages and I had gone, and I was living in Princeton at the time. So I'm like, I'm going to make this an amazing paper and get really good sources. So I went to Alan Blinder's um, office hours and <laughs> he had his, he was there, right? And, you know, Alan Blinder's, just Alan Blinder. And I started talking to him and just describing, you know, going through my questions about the housing market. And he's like, I'm sorry, excuse me are you a student? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not a student. These are your office hours though. Um, I'm not a student. And he's like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I, I'm with a company called Caxton Associates. You actually consult for them. Um, and I'm writing a paper about the housing market when I'm applying for this job. And, you know, I kind of repeated my question and he's like, please leave. <laughs> and and so I was in I was in there for I think two and a half minutes 
Um, and I also went to Paul Krugman's office and he wasn't there, but I just knocked on his door. But, uh, but I did cite Alan Blinder, my conversation with Alan Blinder on the paper that I wrote. Um, I put it in my, I put it in my work cited <clears throat> and I sent it to the PM and the, within a minute, the first thing he, he, he responds and he's like, what happened with Blinder? And I told him the story <laughs> and I'm like, yes, because, you know, I mean, you, it was just, it showed, it showed that I was going to do whatever it takes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I got the job and, um, started, you know, working in New York and at, at this kind of preeminent, uh, hedge fund, it was just, it was an amazing experience. I mean, I, I mean, some of the most, uh, accomplished risk taker risk takers in the world. It was it was amazing. So you went from a market maker to now fractional CFO for many of the companies, and in between being an investor. Talk to us. How does your day look like? Like as a fractional investor, a fractional CFO. So I'm sure one of the startups would have a firefight around, hey, running out of money to others. Okay, I don't know where the revenue is coming from. Doesn't it give you a lot of grief in two difficult problems on the same day? Yeah, it's not, it's not grief. It's, but it's, if, but it, you wake up and, and you have to figure out what hat to put on, right? Um, because the companies are at different stages. It can get really hard. Um, you try and manage your, your schedule such that if there's one brush fire, then fine. If there are two, then you're like, okay, I can deal with this. If there are three, then things are really, really tough. Um, and so I've tried to manage it. And I've gotten better at it, obviously, but you try to manage it where you have one, like one or two big anchor clients, or maybe, but and then the other ones are, are, are smaller lifts or more project-based or, you know, I have some clients where literally the only thing I'm doing is just kind of running their actualization every month and, you know, just going through that variance analysis. And it's really easy. It takes, you know, five to 10 hours a month and it's nothing. Um, and it's pretty, it's very scheduled. So, you know, it's going to come. Um, and then, and then I've worked with, and I still do work with clients who are, um, are huge and they require a significant amount of time and um, and you're running you're running teams you're running a fundraising process or or there are constant you know responsibilities that a CFO of any large company or every large comp or any large startup has to do and so you really have to balance your time and so it's 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 often like feast or famine right like sometimes. Sometimes I, I'll have days where I'm, you know, and I've got time for some yard work, you know, and then other times, you know, it's, I, I, you, you don't have time for anything. And I, I, you know, I, I say hi to my kids, you know, for a little bit and then eat dinner and then, you know, go back upstairs in my office and start working until, until late, late, late. Um, those those are less, but they still they still happen every so often. And I'm assuming you have a team or you work with the team within the startups themselves and advise them. How does like that structure looks like? Yeah, I don't have a team uh, within my own 
uh, within my own company. I, it's something I decided I didn't want to do. You know, I don't want to manage a bunch of bookkeepers and accountants and other CFOs. I thought about that. Um, a couple of colleagues of mine, like we tossed around that idea, but it just doesn't appeal to me. Um, and I mean, and what that means is that I'm capped at some point, right? I can, I can only take so many clients and that's fine. That's fine. Um, but to that extent, I'll, I'll essentially just put myself within the companies that I work with and just manage the existing teams that they have. So sometimes there'll be a VP of finance or a controller, um, some FP&A analysts, AP analysts, things like that. Um, and then I'll manage their external accountants um, and, and kind of work as I am the CFO of the company. And, that, and that's also where it becomes problematic, right? Because if I have five clients, I'm the CFO for five different companies. And, and each client wants, they want an answer, right? They, you know, they want an answer as, as soon as they send an email. So it's just been, it's, it's been a learning process that I've gotten much better at in terms of how do I budget my time and, and my responses, honestly. There's a lot of chatter around AI. And then the reason I ask is, you know, the point that you mentioned earlier that, hey, you kind of grapple with having a team or just, you know, um, using the existing resources. And now the whole chat GPT phenomena, AI comes into existence and say, hey, we're going to make the job of finance easier. Uh, the rote work will get automated and then strategic work is going to come into picture. Are you seeing anything or this is still at a higher level conversation and hype around it? I think there's, there's, there's definitely hype. Um, uh, I mean, you see that just in the investing, in the, in the investing world now, and you see the massive funding rounds and things like that. And, um, but I think in terms of the actual practicality of it, you're not really seeing that right now, at least in, within the startup space. They just don't have the resources, right? Um, I think for larger companies, they're probably investing a lot more in it just kind of as a co-pilot. Um, and I think it'll be very helpful in terms of just delivering real-time metrics, um, KPIs to the CFO. Uh, but I'm not seeing that. <clears throat> I'm not seeing that right now where I am at all. Um, again, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that we're in such an interesting space within the startup um, world right now where, and this has been publicly, you know, said everywhere, but um, startups are having a lot of trouble right now. It's so much trouble. And I'm sure you see that kind of, for, you know, from where you are just being a founder and, and having a lot of probably colleagues who are founders as well. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think that CEOs did not plan well, or a lot of CEOs did not plan well and did not expect this to, this, downturn to continue so long right and the stock market is not the startup world at all right and i think anyone could probably tell you that but definitely the founders because they're struggling um and i think that the next and i haven't i see it in my portfolio companies that i've invested in as well right and so if you don't have runway going through through q1 of next year and you don't, you're not seeing traction, then, then you become uninvestable, you know? 
And it's a really, and I've had very, very difficult conversations. And I've had companies, clients that have gone under. Um, and there, it's, it's the interest, it's the, it's the thing about being a fractional CFO that has gotten, that has always been a, a somewhat of a source of frustration to the extent that, um, I act as kind of a consigliere to the CEO and, and there's only, yeah. And there's only so much I can do, right? I don't have skin in the game and it's something to the effect of, look, I, I've seen this movie play out so many times and I think this is what's going to happen. So you can either do this or not do this, but I have a pretty high sense that it will happen like this and they can take that or not. And so, you know, it kind of goes back to when I was trading and if I had a trade idea that somehow got shut down by a manager and I was just sitting on my hands watching it go the way that I thought. And I'm like, okay. So, so it's, I think it's one of the aspects that, that I've seen, you know, that I've kind of witnessed my, my entire career as a fractional CFO. Um, you know, you know, it, it, with respect to, to the AI, I, I think it will be, you know, kind of going back to your question, I think that it will be impactful, but it's going to be impactful for the companies that have the time, the resources to actually spend on it, but definitely the time to, to really explore it. But for a company that's in its Series A or Series B, there's, there's, there's no time or resource for that. Um, but I think just as, as kind of a, um, as an aid, a co-pilot, a co-pilot to really make some of the tedious tasks easier. Um, I think that'll, that'll, that'll definitely be kind of one of the first order effects. Interesting. I'm going to tease a little bit more on that uh, observation you made, right? So you've seen this story. You mentioned you were, you started a career 2000, an absolutely wrong time to graduate. And do you see the same shades as he saw in 2000 that, you know, a lot of these startups, mine too, we are, we are an early stage, uh, pre-series A, high degree of risk, you think, based on what you saw earlier? You mean from the standpoint of, of their, their runway slash survival or just yeah. as, or, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> and I, you know, I've, I've done fundraisers over the last year with companies that have real revenue and growing and in sectors that are hot and VCs are just, you know, they're the squirrels storing their nuts for, you know, for their family, basically, you know, their existing portfolio companies. They don't care about making new investments. Um, and that's not across the board, but I think, for a lot of the the VCs that have taken significant significant hits, um, that's kind of what they're doing. They're just circling the wagons. You know, I have I have um, some friends uh, that have started smaller seed funds um, uh, that I'm you know that I'm an LPs that I'm LPs on, and they're in a different spot, right? I mean, they're small funds, maybe ten to fifteen million. But, but they have a huge time horizon right now. And 
And they're starting to see valuations come down to the point where they're almost like distressed assets. And so for the idea of putting, you know, 500K or a million K into, into as a bridge, that's fine. They have no problem with that. And I get it, you know, you know, it's kind of, you know, back in, back in 2020, you know, 21, 22, you know, beginning, almost the very beginning of 22, it was, you know, feed the ducks while they're quacking and the ducks were VCs, right? Um, but it's, it's definitely reversed. And so if you have patience and some time horizon, you have the opportunity to, to get in some deals that are greatly undervalued or not undervalued. I would say that I would say just fairly valued given, you know, what the market's doing right now, but have a high degree of, of, I guess, you know, upward momentum, you know? And so I think that there are some, some VCs and investors who are very well positioned. And so for them, it's going to be an amazing time. And this vintage will be fantastic. Right. So I think, I think that dynamic is going to play out, but you're going to see a ton and you already have, but you're going to see a ton more startups just fizzle away. And, you know, it's just part of it. And it's, it's, it's sad from the standpoint of people, you know, losing their jobs, obviously, but it's, it's just a market force. And, and there's really no way of, there's no way of getting around it. You know, if you have it, if you do not have that revenue traction, you know, already, and if you did not aggressively, aggressively, aggressively cut costs over the last year, it's too late. It's too late. And so your only options are your existing investors who aren't going to invest because they just don't see, you know, they don't see the traction. They've got like a ton of other portfolio companies that are in the same financial position, but do have traction, right? So they're done. And it's just, it's just, it's gonna happen. I've seen it, I've seen it. So it's gonna, it's gonna start a really, really gaining steam over the next four to six months. Yeah, we've seen that story play out quite a bit. I, if you see the most successful companies of today, you know, Amplitude to Airbnbs to HubSpots of the world, they were not in the, high market vintage, you know, in 2012, 2013, 2014, or 2005, 2006, 2004. And most of the funds that raised their funds in the high market, you know, most recently 2019 to 2022, uh, 1998 to 2000, they were the worst performers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at Tiger, right? Yeah, look at Tiger. Yeah. Yeah, now they're like trying to sell their secondary, you know, to anybody. And they can't because the bid ask is too wide. And so everyone's trying to see who, you know, who flinches, basically. Um, But it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what a crazy time that was, you know, in 2021. It was bananas, right? Everything kept, everything, everything, everything just was going up and up and up. I mean, I invested in Chime back in at the end of 2020, um, and <clears throat> it was 
you know, I think it was at like 14 or something like that. And, um, it just, it just made sense. It just made, made yeah. sense. And then they were going to like IPO a year later at 45. And now I think it's probably, I mean, it's definitely below 14, but yeah, yeah, it has to be, but it's, it's, um, yeah, I think that you just need it's you just need to have raised enough capital to and cut costs enough just to ride out the storm and and just I think either people didn't do it enough or just didn't expect because they thought that their revenue was gonna grow or just they basically didn't think that this was gonna last that long. Fantastic. So Adam as we conclude our conversation today, I'm going to ask you four rapid questions. Um, you know, think about it for 15 seconds and answer. And, maybe, and, you know, these are essentially to bring out, you know, what you love, what you like. What's your favorite book? My favorite book is, uh, is uh, Zorba the Greek. Um, but that was from, yeah, I mean, that was a, a, a good friend of mine introduced it to me in college. So I, it became kind of my, my special place book. It's just, it's, it's just a beautiful story about, about living and, and about really enjoying your time. So that's, yeah, it's not a finance book, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. How about a favorite movie? I'll, I'll pass. I think I've been, I've been inundated. I had, you know, I have a three and a half year old and a, and a one and a half year old. And so any kind of media that I, that I consume right now is like, is just, I'm with you. It's just like, it's not, we don't, we don't give them any screen time. So it's all just like Coco Melon music and, <laughs> and like, I don't know. I think we go through Lion King and Moana and things like that. But yeah, that's all, that's all that I think about right now in terms of media that I consume, you know, and like maybe like two podcasts. So that, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Who is your f- favorite tech CEO? I think Benioff would probably be my favorite tech CEO. Um, I think just the way, the way that he, you know, when he was working under Ellison and then, and then went out on his own and built just this behemoth of a company. And then he found, but by doing it, because he found an an inflection point in the market that wasn't being served. Um, I thought that was kind of amazing. I think that, you know, it, it's, it's how I try and do my investing in terms of, looking at different inflection points in the market and and thematically what is going to be the next big thing. Um, and I think that that he's been, you know, kind of at the forefront in that in terms of the way that he manages and some of the acquisitions that he's done. Yep, I totally agree. With that, we will conclude our conversation today, Adam. Thank you for your time. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Oh gosh, yeah, I took my website down because I wasn't really <laughs> updating it. But it's um, I'm at uh, my my company is just ACM Consultants. Um, again, um, was super creative with the name. Um, but my you know my my email is just Adam at uh, the ACMC dot com. So, but yeah, fantastic. I'm talking to Adam Metzger. CFO and investor in many successful companies. Adam, thank you for your time. You have a great day. I will chat with you again sometime in the future. Sounds great. It was great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Chief Future Officer Podcast. 
The Chief Future Officer podcast is brought to you by Colum, a CFO's best buddy to buy and manage SaaS. To support this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast application. Links to previous episodes and the rest of the show notes are in the bio, and I love to have you check out other episodes. Lastly, if you want to be on this podcast or recommend a friend, let us know in the comments below. Thank you.